Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we will be exploring the unification of mind and matter. With me is Nobel laureate physicist Brian Josephson. He is the director of the Mind Matter Unification Project in the Theory of Condensed Matter Research Group at Cambridge University in the United Kingdom. Professor Josephson won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1973 for predicting unexpected supercurrent movement or hidden oscillation through a tunnel barrier. He was 33 years old when he received the prize and only 22 when he published the original Insight. The Josephson Junction led to the development of superconducting quantum interference devices known as squid magnetometers, which are capable of making highly sensitive magnetic field measurements. Josephson's research since then has revolved around intelligent processes in nature as they relate to foundational physics. He is the co-editor of the anthology Consciousness and the Physical World. This interview was conducted via the Internet, so now I will switch over to that channel. Uh, welcome, Brian. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I've known you for many years, but this is r really our first time uh, together uh, doing an interview, so I'm very grateful that you're able to take the time to be with me today. And you you have uh, focused on uh, the unification of mind and matter, and you're, um, you've noticed, uh, for starters, that uh, physics is incomplete if it doesn't have uh, a picture of mind, because mind is obviously a, a very integral part of reality. Yes, except the standard uh, position is just that it's a brain, and uh, so it's there's nothing uh, special about it. That's just a thing for the neuroscientists to worry about. But there's little there's difficulty about observation in quantum mechanics, and um, people are sort of arguing about what's really going on there. And um, a number of people have said, uh, well, here the observer and mind and so on mm -hmm. fit in, so it'd be good to add that into physics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the founders of quantum mechanics all seem to have a very deep interest in, in the nature of consciousness, and uh, they, they were also, to some degree, students of Eastern mysticism. Yes, I have some of them, yes. Um, so, uh, I guess people rather went off that. They became more materialistic, perhaps. Mm -hmm. It's as if the... Uh, uh, founders, well, I guess maybe a better way to say it is, uh, is if qu physics has moved in a different direction since those days. Yeah, so, uh, I guess, um, it has been an issue. Well, the lone locality has been a bigger issue, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then observation plays an important part. One person observes and someone in a distance gets a correlated result and John Bell showed that it's difficult to explain that. 
that they are too much connected, uh, the two systems, to, to be ex- to have an ordinary explanation. Mm-hmm. That, which is essentially the definition of non-locality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Particles seem to be able to relate to each other in, in ways that wouldn't normally be allowed because of the limitation of the speed of light. Yes, and um, the entanglement seems to be the issue. This is the um, fundamental thing that uh, there's a strange kind of connection, yes. Mm-hmm. But I gather that in your work, you're really looking at properties of matter itself, and I guess entanglement or non-locality might be one such property, but there are other properties of of matter that that suggest maybe not consciousness per se, but at least the the capacity to um, engage in activity which appears to be mental in nature. Well, John Wheeler was the person who talked about that. He talked about observation having interesting effects, and that um, uh, he, he wrote in an article that um, maybe everything comes from observation or the difference between subject and object, mm-hmm. and he used the word fabrication of form. Mm-hmm. You could create a form by the application of the observer. I don't think he, he used the word mind, and he definitely didn't like to talk about consciousness. Well, I don't like to talk about consciousness either because I'm not too sure how to handle it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, Wheeler uh, was actually uh, hostile to my field of interest, uh, parapsychology, which I know is right. also an interest of yours as well. Yeah. But um, you look at uh, the whole field of semiotics and biosemiotics, which is a uh, really a philosophy that goes back to the 19th century with uh, with Pierce. Uh, yes, the notion of signs. I think what really got me into this was I um, suddenly thought back to something I'd read, I think, in the 1970s, um, Wienergrad's um, computer simulation of language understanding. So this is extremely mysterious, how language works, and if we can understand that, then it's going to be a great advance. And then I thought of looking at um, Wienergrad's computer simulation, and what he's doing is um, putting a lot of bits together. Uh, he uh, he guessed all the things going on in language and uh, what they're all about, and he simulated them in a computer program, and lo and behold, it could understand complicated sentences and work quite reasonably. That seems to be a great clue, then, that you can put uh, put pieces together and you get um, advanced forms of mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't actually um, study um, acquisition, but you can add that in. You say that you have uh, a lot of issues. You have to sort out ways of dealing with these particular issues. And um, so we have potential theory as to how mind comes into existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that also would include ma- manipulating matter because we ma- manipulate matter with our minds. It, it, all biological systems seem to have uh, that capacity. I, it, but you've even gone further than just biological systems and uh, talked about uh, for example, the field of cymatics and how uh, water itself actually seems to be able to respond in an intelligent way to um, vibrations from acoustic waves. 
Yes, that's something that came in rather unexpectedly. Um, and I'd been interested in memory of water because I was actually um, connected with Jacques Benveniste from the very beginning be before he submitted to his paper, which the editor of Nature didn't like. Um, and then, um, so I kept up with him. And so he, he found apparently, um, you, uh, you don't have to, uh, use high dilution of a, an active chemical. You could pick up vibrations from it and, um, apply those vibrations to water. You would even send it over the internet and somebody else would get the effects. Mm -hmm. That proved a bit difficult to reproduce, but um, Luc Montagnier has now taken this up and uh, being attacked for this controversial thing. So you're really also uh, bringing up the whole subject of homeopathy yeah, when you mention Benveniste's work. Uh, yes. Well, he um, well he taught me more of memory of water, but he got into it because there was a um, someone interested in homeopathy in his group who persuaded him to try it. Mm -hmm. So he um, said very little about homeopathy, but of course this, um, well, I got into it because I can see that people who ought to know better are um, making objections which are invalid. Mm -hmm. I say uh, you can um, easily disprove the idea of memory of water by any one of a number of easy to understand invalid arguments. Mm. So uh, people understand these arguments think, oh, this disproves it, but it doesn't. Um, uh, for example, you don't necessarily have to have any of the original substance dissolved in water after you diluted it. There may be some structure or activity left behind. Mm -hmm. you, in, um, in, in other words, there there needn't even be a single molecule of the original, yeah. uh, let's say, homeopathic remedy in the water. But after the molecule is gone, something, some some sort of structural element, almost non-physical, is is still left. Well, uh, needn't be non. Physical, I mean, it just be uh, an interesting structure. Uh, interesting example is um, a quasi-crystal where your crystal um, produces a fraction pattern suggesting it's got five-fold symmetry, which a crystal shouldn't. And really, if you looked at it, you would see it's disordered, but it happens to be some um, uh, relationships which are enough to produce this. So this shows you can have a a rather hard to see structure which can do things. I'm wondering if, if when you're talking about a crystalline structure like that, that's not supposed to be there, is it hyperdimensional? Is, is that what, what you're getting at? Well, it's interesting that it's been shown that the quasi crystal you can get by having some, uh, some like six dimensional crystal and putting a slice across it. There's this technique, but I think that's not, um, uh, I think that's a bit of a distraction. It's just that the, um, uh, if you want the, uh, atoms to arrange themselves to be, say, minimum energy or minimum free energy, and just this act of minimization happens to break the symmetry, so not all directions are the same. Um, so it's connected with symmetry breaking. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, there's a parallel there actually with um, how the mind or how the brain works because there you have a, a complicated system and you put it in a certain environment and it happens then to end up doing things. So there's a bit of a similarity there. You, you let a system settle down and it then can do interesting things. Mm -hmm. 
and the same with cymatics as well. Yeah. In, in cymatics, you, you, um, you've written about how uh, when the pitch or the uh, frequency, the volume of the acoustical signal changes, the uh, patterns that show up, and, and I'm going to show these on the video so our viewers can actually see it, the pattern changes. Uh, it gets chaotic for just a moment, and then all of a sudden, out comes a new pattern, crystalline looking, and, and you suggest that the, the water itself seems to be searching for a stable pattern. That's right. And uh, someone, I guess we both know, Uwe Sheldrake, has actually examined this in detail and shown how it changes as the, as the frequency changes. So, um, yes, it's interesting, these patterns, but it is presumably just a question of finding some uh, that's um, roughly stable. Oh, at least isn't, uh, there's no overall change with time. It settles down anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, it, so this would be an example of uh, something as simple as water molecules showing uh, uh, an apparent uh, intelligent activity. Hmm. And I guess that's what you're getting at. Is uh, In fact, I think you go even a little deeper than that, because in the work you've done with Alyssa Yardley looking at geometric patterns you're suggesting that meaning is even embedded uh in in geometry things like circles and lines and triangles uh, are laden with meaning she's talking about something very subtle like these other things i'm working on, and that's that's why it's not obvious what she means but um one thing which is probably correct is if you have <clears throat> something circling away then it may create these structures it's, it's really quite similar to what happens in cymatics. So um, the key idea is you have structures which are consistent with each other. That's a theme you get in um, semiotics, actually. But um, it, um, I, I guess he's particularly emphasizing it. For example, um, uh, things, well, language system and the things you do with that system, these um interact with each other and they um, come to some kind of equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's really some very interesting things happening, but it's all rather mysterious. I think we have to take the experimental attitude and say we can't necessarily prove that these things will happen, but we can uh, make models and do experiments which show that these intriguing things happen, and that's um, just not in ordinary physics. Yeah. You you also many years ago, in fact, I was there, uh, I think 1994 in Tucson, Arizona, you presented a paper on music and uh, talked about the you know, transcendental nature of music and, and suggested that uh, there's there might well be a platonic realm uh that's related both to the physical uh, realm and to the realm of consciousness that that connects them a realm of forms and that uh, this realm is is what gives music certain unique properties that as you said earlier are quite subtle and and hard to describe but uh, people who listen to music seem to be able to recognize uh yes i think uh, john stuart reads uh, claiming somewhere that um uh good Music makes um, nice patterns. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, um, well, the point there was I was actually um, collaborating with a colleague who's in musicology, and we sort of, I think we both felt that the usual um, 
psychology of music is uh, in, insufficient. You um, you talk about predictability and unpredictability, and that doesn't really seem to capture the essence. So one point my colleague made is that musical theme is something which you can um, uh, use again in a completely different bit of music. So if these themes uh, seem to mean something, have some kind of power. So that was the theme. And um, I don't know whether you'd call it plat platonic or, or what, but it's certainly something um, unusual. But then it would fit in with all these other things like the somatics and so on. Hmm. So there's a, a subtle level of reality which um, impinges on what we observe, which, of course, is what David Bohm talked about. Mm -hmm. It's implicate order. Uh, I don't think he really got into the detail quite as much. So um, he did mention it's uh, some sort of mysterious like mathematics, which he said is a kind of magic, and I, I think it is. And so um, we just have to look into this mystery and mm -hmm. see what there is. Well, a number of physicists um, like David Bohm and Henry Stapp have argued that uh, we need in, in some way to incorporate consciousness into our physical models. Uh, in fact, your paper on the physics of mind and thought was uh, a part of a fest trip for Henry Stapp uh, uh, for his 90th uh, birthday. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things you point out is that e even great physicists like uh, I think people would acknowledge Bohm is a great physicist and, uh, and, and Stapp, they seem to be marginalized as soon as they start talking about consciousness. Yes, well, of course, Bohm probably wasn't the same level as people like Wigner. Mm -hmm. so, um, he, uh, people are less inclined to take note of him. Uh, I guess people like Wigner were considered a bit strange for their mystical ideas. Uh, Wigner, I think, thought that consciousness... And it was a thing that we used for wave packets. Mm -hmm. Wigner and, and I believe John von Neumann also uh, took that point of view, but I gather it's it's rather out of favor these days. Yes, they like to do it all without uh, this wave packet reduction because that's not the ordinary equation. And uh, uh, but, uh, I think there seem to be serious flaws about that. Um, mm -hmm. Multiple universes and then... Well, I think the problem is, how, what is it that um, causes us to see only one? Uh, you have to explain how, why we move into just one of them, and I don't think people explain that. They just sweep that problem under the carpet. Mm -hmm. Well, you you also draw on the work of um, Hofmeier, the yeah, I guess biologist who talks about biosemiotics and and the notion of semiotic scaffolding. I think is is quite significant. That uh, I suppose every person, every viewer of this program might understand. As we get older, we learn language. Once we learn language, we can learn more and more sophisticated concepts using that language. It sort of builds on itself, and that seems to be a property of uh, biological systems in general. And, and you're suggesting that it's also probably a property of other physical systems, like, well, water. Yes, but it's Really, I think kind of mathematics because um, one thing um, is that there are particular strategies for uh, being good at or gaining a particular skill, and um, 
But I once had a, a student who did computer simulations on these grounds. He was actually trying a testing a mathematical theory due to a Norwegian mathematician, Niels Maas. And um, he, uh, he wrote computer programs, which put this idea um, in that you, uh, by doing particular observations, you could develop particular skills. And then you, you got to one level and then you started looking at something else and that, that went on. So, you know, it's not, um, uh, it's in the mathematics, and I guess the mathematics applies to the real system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I got the impression from your paper on um, the physics of mind and thought that you were really advocating, uh, at least temporarily, that physics physicists begin to look at descriptive pictures uh, of reality the way biologists do. And, and uh, if they limit themselves just to mathematics, they're missing a great deal. Thing that's particularly um, uh, a no-no is um, the theory of everything. One equation for everything. Mm-hmm. I think uh, pieces uh, pieces have their own mathematics, and then the bits of mathematics fit together in a kind of hierarchy. And as uh, Karen Barad um, actually wrote about that, she was a theoretical particle physicist, and she um, uh What's book called uh, Meeting the Universe Halfway, The Entanglement of Mind and Matter. Mm-hmm. Um, she uh, talked, well, she talks at great lengths about things trying to get the idea over um, what happens uh, at the human level. And uh, she suggested, why is it just human observations that um, we put into quantum mechanics? It should be something much more general. In that case, let's um, um, let's see, matter feels and thinks and all that is a statement she made. I was under the impression that, that you really felt that, because you've used the word subtle several times in our discussion now, you're, you're looking at subtle aspects of reality. Absolutely. Talk about it. Um, uh, yeah, Karen Barrard has a picture which she calls a gentle reality. Um, mm-hmm. She uh, wants to change how we look at reality. And she says, well, the thing which is reasonably objective is a phenomena. And then uh, agencies that give rise to these phenomena. And then these agencies interact in special ways um, when they are cooperating. And um, he tries to get it to uh, show that a lot of the mysteries of quantum mechanics fit into this picture. And um, he seems to have done this in independence of uh, theories like semiotics. Yeah, um, yeah various habits like uh, uh, I mean, yeah, uh, all these different people uh, uh, get some consistent conclusions. So she talks about uh, various habits and then there's um, including language and uh, Language is organizing things to help put them together. So she has a somewhat similar picture, but um, gets at it a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's just a vast field, and uh, you can look at different pieces of it and produce that um, uh, theories of these pieces. 
I mean, I mean, here we are having a conversation about some very abstract uh, concepts, the nature of mind and the, the nature of reality itself. In order for us to even be having this discussion, there must be thousands of biological, uh, semiotic, biosemiotic processes going on uh, in, our, in our facial muscles, in our uh, nervous system, and they're all somehow coordinating with each other. Yes, that's a mystery, and I don't know if we, I think we may have to just accept it as a fact that it works like that. And in fact, um, we really need to apply that to our thoughts. We uh, just automatically take it that our thoughts are making sense, but what does that mean? Uh, you get worried when you look into it. Um, uh, my thoughts presumably mean something, or they make no sense, and uh once I turn this into an aphorism, we think that we think clearly, but that's only because we don't think clearly. <laughs> so, um, and we're, we're so used to thinking that we don't, uh, wonder about it. Um, and, uh, you then have to take the, um, kind of pragmatic approach that we're just searching and we have to accept that our thoughts about it mean something and build up in that way. Mm hmm. Well, while I have you uh, with me, Brian, I, I wonder if uh, you might say something about um, your interest in parapsychology. I know on one occasion, uh, for example, uh, it's been re widely reported you were disinvited from a conference because one of the organizers uh, learned that you had an interest in uh, parapsychology. And in spite of all of your other scientific credentials, they felt that uh, uh, you were not welcome at their conference. Yes, well, I heard this partly because um, one of the organizers was applying for a job and he <laughs> thought he had better be careful. Hmm. <laughs> the students might get a bad reputation. I don't know, this is a bit um, uh, extreme. Anyway, I'll just go and get something. I hope I can well, take your time. Go ahead. Yes, well, my involvement began with um, a colleague, uh, George Owen, Mm -hmm. uh, I think a mathematical gen geneticist. In his spare time, he he went along to places and uh, looked to, to see if there was good evidence for the alleged poltergeist. Um, anyway, so he introduced me to uh, parapsychology, and I, I um, at that time, I was unaware that it was uh, people were hostile to it. And anyway, I think it intrigued me was that he. Um, there seem to be parallels between parapsychology and quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. And um, then he went to Toronto and he invited me to a, um, a conference on uh, psychokinesis, actually, and um, I managed to retrieve this um, key, which... Um, uh, is that showing up okay? It, I can see the key, and it looks like there's a very slight... Oh, yeah, two two bends in the key. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um that was uh, uh, as a parapsychologist there, Matthew Manning, oh, yes. a, a psychic. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so he was demonstrating metal bending, and that is uh, pretty difficult to bend with just your hands and there were no no great movements. He didn't appear even to be bending anything. Mm -hmm. um, so that was uh, my introduction, partly. So I I, I rather stood on the sideline. Uh, I've um, uh, 
focused on other things. I did, I did write some, I've, I've done a couple of papers on it mm -hmm. and be to some conferences, but that's all basically. Yeah. I know on your website, you make a point of, uh, uh, putting up uh, occasional papers that uh, show the errors and the various uh, criticisms offered by people who call themselves skeptics. Yeah, yes. But uh, it appears though, that there is quite a proportion of um, scientists who believe that um, telepathy and so on are real, mm -hmm. but they have to um, be careful not to talk about it. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you were there at... Um, I think it was the centenary of the uh, American Parapsychological Society in, um, held in Cambridge jointly with the Society for Psychical Research. And there, Brian, Super Brian Pippard, who was my supervisor, PhD supervisor, he gave the after-dinner speech and he revealed something he told me that during the, um, uh, let's see, is it First or Second World War, um, uh, his mother, um, his brother was um, in action there, and uh, his mother always seemed to know the situation he, he was in. Like once she said he was, uh, uh, he's in a dangerous situation. But some days later she said, ah, oh, it's he's okay now. That turned out to be the truth. Mm -hmm. So he was um, fairly convinced it was real because of his mother seeming to be able to see what was happening there. Uh, he thought you couldn't experiment with it. And I think... Um, a lot of people seem to just because you can't get perfect reproducibility and they don't realize you can um, look at the statistics. Mm -hmm. So I, I would think uh, as a physicist that this kind of data uh, does resemble the, the sorts of weird things that are reported at, at the quantum physical level. Uh, in fact, I recall uh, one physicist, Costa de Beauregard, many years ago, wrote a, a paper, I think it was published in Scientific American, and he said that if, if the parapsychologists hadn't already uncovered things like telepathy and uh, psychokinesis, uh, quantum physics should be predicting it. Yes, the only thing is a theorem that it can't uh, happen if you make certain assumptions mm -hmm. about uh about locality. So, in other words, you could put locality into quantum mechanics and the uh, usual theories are local and then they show there's an influence but you can't use it to send a signal. Right. It's a trouble. Um, however, uh, Fatini, Palakari and I um, did uh, write a paper where we showed that Bohm's hidden variable version of quantum mechanics, that there you you might be able to get some, some uh, uh, psychic influences at distance. Hey, uh, mm -hmm. You've also, uh, in your recent paper, quoted uh, the work of Sutherland, uh, uh, physicist who, who suggests that backward causality can restore locality, but it might also allow for things like uh, precognition. I think, I think what we have is final causation, which, um, means if you know what's, um, what, what situation is heading towards, you can predict how it's going to get there. Mm -hmm. That's um, entirely classical, no backwards influence. Uh, the problem there is reconciling it with relativity, but that um, has, you may have to put in relativity by a different approach and say, well, this is an example of symmetry 
um, that, that appeared. And um, uh, Sutherland wants everything to be consistent with relativity, whereas I think there is a perhaps a fixed um, a fixed reference frame, a special one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, thing that you can have actions at a distance. Mm-hmm. Well, to put it in more general terms, what I think you're getting at is that there's really a lot of disagreement amongst different schools of physicists as as to uh, how to interpret these basic theories that seem to work so well mathematically, but what they actually mean is still quite controversial. They work well because physicists study matter, mm-hmm. and therefore um, avoiding the situations where mind would come into it and and uh, not not be not be possible to fit it to the usual theory. So, for someone such as yourself who is trying to find ways to introduce mind in, into physics, it, the the problem, I guess, would seem to be that it it could be disruptive to the entire field. Uh, uh, yes, it would mean you would have to sort of start again. It would be the next step, just as you went from classical physics to quantum physics. Mm-hmm. It created a certain amount of disruption back then. Mm. Yeah. Yes, so um, I hope people will um, uh, take it up. It's had, uh, the paper's had quite a number of people even clicking to see the full text. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't know who's actually looking at it, but it's doing quite well. I, yes, I happen to notice it's been read already over 700 times, I think, and hasn't yet uh, even been published. That's right. Um, uh, and uh, more than 200 have clicked to get the full text. Uh-huh. Well, Brian, um, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with mm-hmm. me. Well, nice talking to you. Oh, bye then. Thank you.